0: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is Andrew Roberts. Andrew's a renowned biographer and historian, author most recently of the magisterial Churchill, Walking with D- Destiny, which came out last year, 2018. And we're talking to Andrew today about his most recent project, just published, Leadership in War, Lessons from Those Who Made History, which has just appeared with Alan Lane. Andrew, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show.
1: You are kind, Crawford. Thank you very much. It's uh, great to be on the show. Well,
0: thank you for your time and sharing your work with us today. Before we start to talk about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Oh, uh, golly, I am 56. I've been writing history books for 30 years. I'm an Englishman, as you could probably uh, hear, but I've got a visiting readership at um, the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and a readership at the New York Historical Society, so I spend quite a lot of time in America, and I'm also a visiting professor at the Department of War Studies uh, here in um, in London, King's College, London.
0: Now, lots of those themes run through the contents of this book, don't they? Um, we have here ten chapters, including a conclusion, uh, which are miniature biographies, you might say, of very significant historical figures focused very much on this theme of leadership that you want to trace um, th- th- through this cast of characters. As we read across this book, one of the things that strikes me as being very important for many of these individuals is the reading of history. Why was history and the reading of history so important for so many of these people?
1: Well you're absolutely right Crawford. Um they are um, all interested, I mean all without exception, interested in history and they refer to history, they read history, In Churchill's case, he told a young American student on the uh, time of the coronation, the 1953 coronation of the coronation luncheon, he said, study history, study history, for therein lies all the secrets of statecraft. And I think lots of these people actually thought that therein lay all the secrets of military leadership, too. And so you see uh, Napoleon, for example, um, reading a huge amount of... um, books on uh, Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and then Winston Churchill reading a lot of books on uh, Mel- on um, Nelson but also on Napoleon he had a small Napoleon library which you can see at uh, Cambridge University he um, himself was uh, his speeches were were read and uh, listened to in fact by the young Margaret Thatcher and so you have a sort of apostolic succession really going uh, going back through history Adolf Hitler, to um, use a less positive um, analogy, was also fascinated by history. He looked at the stories of Arminius and um, Emperor Barbarossa and so on. Of course, he named his great offensive against Russia Operation Barbarossa. Um, So again and again, you do see uh, in George Marshall and and, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, both of them read history. Charles de Gaulle was fascinated by history. Um, He had a... uh, a sort of love-hate relationship with the memory of Napoleon, um, and so it really is an important aspect to, uh, to all of these people. And what they learn, I think, is uh, is some secrets, some techniques of leadership. Um, they are uh, they're interested in how far leaders can go. Of course, in, in Hitler and in Hitler and Napoleon's case, they went too far, especially into Russia. Um, And they didn't learn from history, but um, but other people most certainly did.
0: Another thing that that comes across in a very interesting way through the book is the importance of religious faith for many of these individuals. It's quite striking how often uh, that comes up.
1: Yes, it is is interesting, isn't it? Um, uh, Some were simply not religious at all. Winston Churchill um, famously described himself as being, uh, his relationship to the Church of England as being like a flying buttress in that he supported it but from the outside. <laughs> he believed in, um, in uh, an almighty, but when you look at it theologically, the sole duty of the almighty seems to have been to look after Winston Churchill. Um, Adolf Hitler um, had no religious faith of, um, of any kind. He believed in a, in a form of providence, um, but again, providence's job was to um, make sure that uh, he and the German people um, prospered. Napoleon, too, had an interesting relationship. Of course, at one point he imprisoned the Pope, which isn't a very uh, sensible thing to do um, religiously, but you have a, uh, a sense that he was also the man who um, ended the French Revolution and therefore allowed the French uh, Catholic Church to, um, uh, to live again. Um, before that, it had just been closed up. Nelson was religious. He um, deeply um, believed. Um, and uh, uh, obviously Stalin wasn't a- at all, but um, both Marshall and uh, Eisenhower um, were God fearing. It's a um, it is an interesting thing that, that runs through the uh, through the book. N-
0: Nelson, you, you may say he was devout. His his lifestyle would not be the typical uh, <laughs> lifestyle of a devout Christian, would it be?
1: <laughs> no, absolutely. Yes, I, I think. Uh, I think there was a good deal of of, uh, moral hypocrisy there, in that he treated his wife uh, Fanny abysmally, and uh, of course uh, carried on in in public with his mistress, Lady Hamilton. Um, And uh, but nonetheless, he was uh, he was somebody who uh, made uh, made reference to God, who believed in God, um, and uh, and yes, (laughs) but when one looks at the uh, the moral lives of some of these people, it's interesting how some. Um, like George Marshall and Margaret Thatcher, um, had uh, had um, strong religious faith and were um, faithful to their spouses, whereas uh, some people like Napoleon um, had no fewer than 27 mistresses.
0: Which leads us, interestingly, into discussion about honour, another theme that stretches through the book. Um, w- w- Honour's an interesting concept. It seems so out of step with so much contemporary discussion. Uh, and yet, for many of your characters, it really matters. Why is that? What do they understand by honour, and what does honour mean to them?
1: Well, for, for most of them, if not all of them, they had a sense of personal honour, not necessarily um, one that... Um, drove them, but they also had a sense of national honour, which was important, which was something that they um, didn't feel that they could stand by and see uh, traduced. The classic example, of course, being um, Charles de Gaulle, who really saved the honour of France when he, um, when he fled France in June 1940 and uh, came here to London to set up the Free French and continue the struggle against the Nazis. Um, he had a very powerful sense of, um, of public honour. Um, um, uh, so so also did uh, Churchill in his great speech again in 1940 at the time of the death of um, of Neville Chamberlain he speaks about the ranks of honour and uh, and who marches in them and who doesn't and how important it is to um, to keep faith with your conscience uh, in order to um, to continue to, as he says march in the ranks of honour so um, yes, it is an important thing. Napoleon felt that his personal honour was um, being uh, traduced in 1814 when the Allies were offering peace deals, and indeed 1813, which um, clashed with his concept of the uh, of the coronation oath that he had taken in 1804. So. Yes it is an important and interesting aspect of um, of all of these
0: people really. It's it's an interesting theme because it, it it's it's situated somewhere between self-respect individual and national self-respect and pride.
1: Yes I think you you get this very much also of course with Margaret Thatcher at the time of the Falklands crisis. Um whereas there were people who were saying look uh, we could have a, a condominium organization with the Argentinians uh, where they have the sovereignty but they leased back the islands and so on. For uh, Margaret Thatcher it went far deeper than that and it went to concepts of honour and um, and whether or not uh, uh, the, um, the promises made over the years to the islanders by the uh, British Crown were going to be upheld or whether they weren't.
0: Hmm. Well, in the book we have nine um, mini-biographies, bu- mini miniature biographies, um, How did you choose on these nine individuals, Andrew?
1: Um, With complete serendipity, I have to admit. I don't for a moment pretend that these are the uh, nine most important leaders in history. There are plenty of people who I didn't uh, speak about. The uh, genesis of this project was that I was asked to give a speech on anything I wanted to do with military history uh, to the New York Historical Society over three years. And so I decided deliberately not to... Um, to give lectures on Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, or George Washington, because I didn't really feel that I could teach the Americans terribly totally much about their own great national heroes. But um, it was a uh, it was just sheerly, sheer sheer um, uh, decision on my part to to um, speak about people who interested me and uh, who I had written about and who I think thought I had something interesting and new to say about. So. So um, please don't ask me why isn't Bismarck there, as somebody did at, uh, the, uh, at a bookshop uh, yesterday. That was my um, next question. <laughs> <laughs> just simply because I don't uh, consider that I know enough about Bismarck to um, to write about him.
0: Well, let's start with Napoleon. Wh- what are the lessons in leadership, as your book title puts it, from Napoleon? Just so many, just so many. He
1: was uh, in many ways the exemplar of uh, the concept of leadership, even though, of course, he lost. This is an interesting thing about uh, Napoleon, that uh, he was ultimately, of course, defeated and died in exile, and so you would um, naturally think of him as a loser. However, he was um, the exemplar of almost all of the great um, sort of secrets of leadership, the way in which he gave out glory, distinction, and rewards, the way in which he created a meritocracy amongst his marshals, the creation of the legend d'honneur, the way way in which he allowed access to himself. He'd always make sure, for example, whenever they bivouacked, that the um, uh, sentries got the wine first and the drummer boys were allowed to sit around the campfire. This wonderful sort of sense of access to him, um, which was very unusual in those days. You certainly didn't get it in the British Army. Um, His orders of the day, the way in which he would... um, uh, he would personally give standards to people. Sometimes in battle, he would take off his own legion d'honneur and give it to somebody who he'd seen do something brave. And this is all tremendous sense of uh, leadership his timing, his compartmentalization of his mind, so he was able to think about one thing, whatever was going on uh, around him. Um, there's a whole list in the, at the end of my chapter, my essay on Napoleon, which, uh, explains his um his extraordinary capacity for uh, for the leadership of men he says he said one must speak to the soul it's the only way to electrify the men.
0: Hmm. and you, you twin napoleon with nelson uh, in in the following chapter how does nelson compare
1: uh well it's a different kind of leadership um of course he's not a uh He's not a national uh, leader, and and actually, um, warfare on land is hugely different from warfare at sea. Um, and warfare at sea was at least the time that that Nelson attempted to uh, to prosecute was a war of um, sheer annihilation. He always wanted to go for annihilation. He was tremendously aggressive, uh, fearless. He was a uh, he was a predator, and. Um, uh, he believed in keeping the initiative as much as possible. He didn't mind disobeying orders. Um, as, so long as, of course, he was uh, successful, everybody let him do that. He had this this burning hatred of the French Revolution, which is why, as you say, they're twinned, because, of course, Napoleon um, wanted to bring the French Revolution to an end, but to an end in which he extended its premises across Europe, and uh, Nelson was very much opposed
0: And then chapters three and four give us another set of of, of twins, I suppose, Um, Churchill and Hitler. Churchill, obviously, the subject of your your last magisterial um, work. How did you approach Churchill differently in writing this particular chapter?
1: Well, what I tried to do was to concentrate on this um, extraordinary sense how in 1940 um, and 1941 he kept putting forward ideas for how we we're going to win the war, at least be on the winning side of the war, uh, even though it um, didn't seem until June 1941, at least, when Hitler invaded Russia, that we could possibly be on the winning side. The French had been knocked out in uh, six weeks of campaigning. We'd been flung off the continent at Dunkirk. The Russians were on the side of the Germans. The Americans were totally uninterested in getting in the war. So how on earth, why on earth should we continue to to prosecute this war that it didn't look like we could win? And which Lord Halifax, his foreign secretary, was saying, actually, we shouldn't continue to prosecute anyway, and we should uh, come to some kind of terms with Hitler. And uh, Churchill came up with these various ideas that um, uh, Germany would be destabilized by bad harvests, was one of them, that we'd be able to blockade Germany, i.e. the uh, entirety of Europe. Um, he said that the Americans were going to join, which was very unlikely. He said the French were ca- going to counterattack towards the um uh, early part of June 1940, which was even more unlikely. And so uh, my, my sense of his leadership at that um, time um, in persuading the British people that without really any good arguments that we hadn't lost the war um, was in itself one of the greatest acts of leadership that he, um, that he undertook. Because if we had got uh, done a peace with Hitler in 1940, it would have ultimately been extremely uh, disastrous for us. So this, in a sense, what you needed at a time of uh, such national peril was somebody who was illogical and irrational and romantic, a romantic figure like uh, Churchill, who was able to persuade the British people with his eloquence what, to all intents and purposes, any rational or logical person would have um, believed to be impossible.
0: And and yet, for all of his extraordinary public persona and success uh, one of the things that was really striking about your chapter is your note that he only became financially solvent when he was seventy-three years old. <laughs> yes, that's right.
1: Which is a very good thing, and and he he was financially solvent when he was seventy-three because he had uh, signed the um, signed the contract for his war memoirs, and uh, so that was uh, that was very good for him. But uh, and the first thing he did, of course, was the classic sort of regency aristocratic thing, which was to buy the first of thirty-seven racehorses. <laughs> but the good thing for us, at least certainly for, uh, for biographers of Churchill and people who write about him, is that he um, was forced, because he was broke all the time, to write his 37 books and over 800 articles. And it's through them that we can you know, get into the mind of the man.
0: Now, we follow the chapter on Churchill with a chapter on, on Adolf Hitler, and you begin that chapter... Um, with the following observation, any, any understanding of Adolf Hitler has to begin by acknowledging the fact that he was extravagantly admired and even worshipped by millions of normal people for more than a decade. That's leadership, isn't it?
1: Uh, it's a form of it, it is, but it's also um, a completely artificial form of charisma. Uh, charisma in my I, I started the lecture series thinking that charisma was a was a good thing and an actually you know positive thing, but actually it 's morally neutral it 's like nuclear fission it can be used for good and for ill and and uh, Hitler had it, but the only reason he had it was that he had through joseph Goebbels controlled the um, the news agenda the media uh, for twelve years and um, so he had this this power that um, was not given to Democrats, of not being criticized. He also, of course, had Lenny Riefenstahl doing his films and um, Albert Speer doing his rallies. And frankly, with that, you could make any person uh, charismatic, uh, even somebody as as physically unprepossessing as, uh, as Hitler. Um, but what did also come out, I hope you agree from that chapter, was his extreme personal weirdness when it came to his beliefs. I don't mean just his hateful, um, uh, anti-Semitic and, uh, and racial beliefs, but, um, but also beliefs about all sorts of things that had nothing to do with politics.
0: Mm, science fiction, etc. Um, d- d- did you find it difficult to write about Hitler with a view of thinking about learning lessons in leadership from his style?
1: uh yes yes of course and it's and it is controversial and i and i do get uh, criticized you know how can you possibly say that hitler was um was a, a great leader uh, um and, how, and that all hinges of course on the word great because i'm not saying he was a great leader as in that he was an admirable leader clearly not um but he was a substantial leader he did uh, lead the world into war in the middle of the 20th century which um is obviously something that is uh, enormous, and thus great, in the sense of being large. Um, He was um, uh, very successful in the beginning. Um, When one thinks in 1939 to uh, to the 21st of June 1941, he knocked out Poland in um, four weeks, knocked out France in six, knocked out uh, uh, Yugoslavia and Greece in three, I mean, these are extraordinary achievements of Blitzkrieg, and indeed at the very opening stages of Operation Barbarossa, uh, it was incredibly successful. So I think just because he lost the war, in a way that Napoleon also lost the war, uh, shouldn't blind us to the fact that he did have some leadership techniques, some secrets of leadership that it's worth um, examining in a book like this.
0: Mm. You mentioned Barbarossa, Andrew, and of course the next chapter takes us to Joseph Stalin, another of these monsters. Um, You begin that chapter with... um, the, the 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 famous quotation of the revolution devouring its children. How how do we see this happening through Stalin?
1: Well, um, he uh, he massacred the um, the Red Army between nineteen thirty six and nineteen thirty eight. At least the leadership of the Red Army. If you were a general or a colonel or a marshal of the Red Army in those years, you had a one in three chance of being um, of being purged, being shot, and uh, so he uh he went through this uh the high command in a completely paranoid way because they weren't plotting to overthrow the bolshevik party and to uh to you know assassinate or imprison him they just simply weren't but nonetheless he uh he felt um that um in his sort of paranoid sense that um that they were and this meant of course that three years later when the second world war when hitler invaded um they had a, a pretty substandard officer corps. Uh, they had to bring people out of the prisons and put them straight into high command um, in order to uh, to defend against this sudden surprise attack by the Germans. There's one moment where where Marshal Rokosovsky, uh, one of the top um, ger- top Russian uh, generals, actually comes into Hitler's presence, um, and he's he's had all his teeth knocked out by um, by the um, NKVD um, uh, down in the Libyanka prison and and uh, Stalin looks at him and says, where have you been? He knows perfectly well where, um, where Rokozovsky had been for the previous few years.
0: Hmm. And yet he becomes Time magazine man of the year for 1939
1: and 42. I know, it's extraordinary really, but uh, nonetheless when one thinks of the 27 million uh, Russians who died in the Second World War um, pretty much any other Um, leader, apart from somebody as ruthless as Stalin, would not have been able to have kept that country in the war. And one has to remember that for every five Germans killed in conflict in the Second World War, four of them die on the Eastern Front.
0: Yes, you mentioned the attrition rate there. Is it something like 80% you say?
1: Yeah, four four out of five, which is a completely extraordinary uh, number, and it just puts into perspective really what the British Americans, Canadians, and what the rest of us were doing on the uh, on the Western front really.
0: You mentioned the Americans and we have two chapters here, one in Marshall one in Eisenhower. If you you take those two characters together, um, how do you see them relate, how do you see them develop distinctive leadership styles but working effectively side by side to lead the Americans?
1: Um, Yes, that's a good question, I mean not exactly side by side because of course Eisenhower always did look up to George Marshall and he was um, the uh, protégé of George Marshall but um, and so he was learning all the time from George Marshall, but um, Marshall managed to get the American army from uh, twenty, sorry, from two hundred thousand men in, uh, in when the war broke out in September 1939, up to sixteen million um, Americans in uniform at the time that it ended um, in uh, the Japanese surrendered in September 1946. The most extraordinary um, increase. Uh, some, some some by eighty times is quite something, and uh, and he managed to um, to organise it all. And I think that in itself was um, was a uh, justification for putting him in, in this chapter. With regard to um, and he had lots of um, lots of sort of leadership uh, traits. One was never to appear tired. He uh, he remembered how General Pershing used to sometimes appear tired, and it was very bad for morale. And so, however tired he was, he propped his eyes open and kept going, you know, pinching himself to make sure that he didn't uh, appear tired in front, of the, uh, in front of the staff. With Eisenhower, um, of course, he was a Supreme Allied Commander leading a coalition. He was a sort of chairman of the board. And you see his energy and his decency and his good sense and his calmness, uh, I hope, in this chapter. And when one considers... The sheer extraordinary number of people he was, he was ordering around, 91 divisions, including 28,000 planes, nearly a million vehicles. Uh, you can so understand why um, he had um, stage two hypertension. He was smoking four packets of cigarettes a day. Uh, he had a blood pressure of 176 over 110. Um, it was uh, it was just about as stressful a job as possible, and yet he too went out of his way always to uh, to appear calm.
0: Hmm. The Second World War is really at the heart of this book, isn't it? We have Churchill, Hitler, Stalin, Marshall, De Gaulle, who was mentioned briefly already, and Eisenhower. Taking the view from twenty nineteen and looking at the way in which each of those leaders positioned their nations to to come out of the war with their very different experiences which of them would you say won the war?
1: <laughs> That's a very good question. Well, actually, somebody who isn't in the book, <laughs> Dwight D. Eisen, uh, sorry, um, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Um, he was the person who had the overall, um, uh, overall plan of when to attack in the West. And um, he, he joined with um, Field Marshal Sir Alan Brooke, the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, the Chairman of the British Chiefs um, of Staff and Churchill to stop George Marshall from um, from going into northwestern France any earlier than, um, than D-Day uh, Marshall was originally wanting to do it as early as the autumn of 1942 um, which as I say in my essay I think would have been disastrous because we didn't have air support and we hadn't won the Battle of the Atlantic um, but uh, the person who um, who then changed sides in uh, the Washington Conference in June 1943 and insisted on D-Day taking place in the summer of 1944 was, um, was FDR, uh, which does crop up, of course, in the book, but I haven't dedicated an entire chapter to him.
0: Now, the last chapter is a chapter you dedicate to the most remarkable English women since Queen Elizabeth I, as you put it, um, and y- your focus there is on Margaret Thatcher's response to the Falkland Islands crisis. Why, why, yes, why did why did right. you choose? It's,
1: it's it's sort of very un uh, untypical um, that she should have not um, organised some kind of a um, of a back down of a negotiation. Um, uh, some most normal people, uh, politicians, um, certainly I think male politicians would have uh, come to some kind of uh, agreement with Argentina over this. In, um, in 1982, but she had a, um, as we mentioned earlier, a sense of honor, also this Churchillian spirit to her, um, and a, a sort of bloody mindedness that um, she wasn't going to be pushed around by the Argentinian junta. And so she basically ripped up in 1982 all of the post-Suez assumptions that uh, were made by, by Whitehall and Westminster and the Foreign Office.
0: Now, which of these individuals that you've written about do you most admire?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, having just done this this big, written this big biography of Churchill, Churchill Walking with Destiny, I suppose it has to be uh, it has to be him. Ultimately, you uh, uh, it was just so much fun to write that book. You never have to go more than about three pages without coming across a Churchill joke or some aperçu or some wonderfully quoted witticism, or so on. So I suppose in terms of, um, of, of that, who the best leader was, however, I think is a different, um, a different question, if you don't mind me asking myself a question you haven't asked, <laughs> is, um, is Napoleon, uh, for the reasons that, as I say, I give at the end of the Napoleon chapter. He just had pretty much every single um, attribute that a great leader needs to have and which um, most of the others in the book, except for Adolf Hitler, um, tended to have to a degree. Um, But uh, but Napoleon had all of them. But of course, as we mentioned earlier, ultimately he lost.
0: Well, Andrew, we've taken up a lot of your time today. But before we wind up, uh, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment, what your next book might be?
1: Yes, I'm writing somebody who wouldn't actually appear in uh, in a book about great leadership in war um, and who also lost, um, and that's King George III. Um, he was not the tyrant of the Declaration of Independence, uh, let alone the villain of um, Hamilton the musical. He was, in fact, a Renaissance figure. He was an enlightened monarch. He was just very unfortunate to live in the same um decade of such geniuses as uh, washington and franklin and adams and madison and monroe and hamilton himself and uh, and all the rest of them that was his uh, tragedy
0: well that sounds like a great project and hopefully we can get to chat about that in due course too um for now thanks very much for your time and thanks for coming on to the show to to talk about it and take care
1: i really enjoyed it crawford
0: thank you very much for inviting me Thanks, Andrew, and thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.